The title that I've chosen for this morning is that of religious optimism. Uh, and at first glance, you might think that religious optimism is a good thing. Um, I realised over the weekend that uh, this is, uh, in the summer, the 45th anniversary of my beginning to preach and explain about Jesus. So I wanted to, to come from a slightly different angle. But I realised that in doing that, I, I might possibly confuse you even more than I usually do. Because at first glance, religious optimism seems like uh, quite a good thing. Um, if you look in a dictionary, um, religious is relating to or believing in a religion. And optimism is hopefulness and confidence about the future or success of something. So at first glance, having hopefulness and optimism about the things that we believe, um, you would understandably think to be good. But if you stop and think for a moment, and I'm always in favour of stopping and thinking for a moment, uh, it might depend, for example, on your religion. You wouldn't want a jihadist to have religious optimism. And here is the scary thing as we trace through the Palm Sunday story this morning. The Palm Sunday story includes people who thought they knew what God was going to do politically. They were followers of Jesus. They knew their Bible and they got it wrong. In the Palm Sunday story, there are people who thought they knew what God would do for them personally, but they got it wrong. There were people who thought they knew what they could get away with as people in the employ of the temple and in commerce, but they were wrong. So when I talk uh, this morning about religious optimism, uh, while having faith in God is a good thing and taking a positive view upon life is a good thing, I'm going to suggest to you there are times when religious optimism can be unhelpful. And by the time we finish, I'm going to contrast this with a realistic optimism uh, as opposed to uh, religious optimism. Um, because here's the thing. There are matters about who God is and what God has done that we can be completely confident in. God loves you, absolutely. Jesus died on the cross to restore your damaged, broken relationship with God, absolutely. These are not negotiable, these are true, and hold on to them. But when we move into the arena of trying to say what God is going to do next, there is the possibility that we'll get it wrong, and there are also ways in which we can improve the possibility of getting it right. So uh, here is my definition of religious optimism. The mistaken belief rooted in inadequate understanding that what you dearly want God to do is his intention. And if you falsely hope that God is going to do something that he has not actually declared he will do, then uh, you're in for trouble. So let's set the background uh, with some photographs kindly provided by a well-known supplier of pilgrimage tours to Israel. Um, <laughs> Jesus has come to Jerusalem knowing that he will suffer. He's passed through uh, Jericho. Uh, this is the place where uh, we see the very tree in which Zacchaeus stood. The green notice 
in the foreground does formally attest to this being a very old tree, though when I was there last year I noticed they have taken that notice down. Uh, blind Bartimaeus has been healed. Uh, Jesus goes on to Bethany, and this is inside the tomb of Lazarus. On the left-hand side you can see the steep stone steps down. On the right-hand side there is the uh, uh, burial area. And then Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and he arrives from the other side of the hill. This is looking from the Temple Mount out towards the east, and Bethany is behind the hill of the Mount of Olives, and there is a wonderful path, uh, pretty well, we would reckon, the path that Jesus went down, that goes from the top of the Mount of Olives and down towards the Golden Gate in the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, halfway down, or a third of the way down, there's a beautiful church we'll see a bit more of in a moment called the Dominus Flavit Church, Latin for the Lord wept. At the bottom of this picture on the left-hand side is Gethsemane. So this is the setting for the story that we're going to have. If you uh, go through 180 degrees, look at the view of Jerusalem we often see on the news, looking down from the top of the Mount of Olives, here is the Palm Sunday path down. And uh, to make up for the lack of video introduction, before we finish, uh, I'll show you uh, a minute or so of what happens on Palm Sunday. We can't go there, but thousands of Christians singing and dancing their way down that path is fun. I like it. Um, a little bit down the path, uh, you come to this Dominus Flavit church, uh, a beautiful bit of architecture because the way the church has been designed, it's a modern church, is on a teardrop theme. So this marks the place where Jesus looks over Jerusalem and grieves. And then he comes down to uh, the temple. This is a, a model to show us. Uh, the golden gate is the sealed up gate in front in the wall. Uh, the walls that we see today are only a few hundred years old, but in the same place. The temple is there. And the court of the Gentiles is where all the business practice <coughs> went on that Jesus condemned. So, to the story. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as, they, as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. As he went along, <coughs> people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, quoting there from Psalm 118, because there are a bunch of psalms that people would read when they went to Passover. So thinking about religious optimism, let's start with political religious optimism. And the intriguing thing is that Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, you'll remember up at Caesarea Philippi, um, he's uh, questioned his followers about who they think he is. Uh, Peter says the Christ. And that marks a turning point and Jesus sets out towards Jerusalem knowing what is going to happen to him. 
And when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he consciously lays out ground for people to recognize him as Messiah. Uh, these are the things that he did. He'd had that talk with the disciples. They didn't get it because, like us, they were a little slow. There have been spectacular miracles as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and news of them doubtless travelled ahead of him. But he is taking this action at the celebration of Passover and Jewish expectation still today is that perhaps Messiah will come at Passover and at that time it was a time of messianic expectation. The Mount of Olives itself in the, the prophet Zechariah is associated with the coming messianic action. <clears throat> the riding on a donkey thing, we don't think donkeys are particularly regal, but under certain circumstances, a king might ride on a donkey. It's another ceremonial statement, um, as is the fact the donkey is unridden. It seems to me that riding an unbroken donkey is something that could go badly wrong. But in terms of ceremonial rightness, a donkey upon which nobody has yet ridden is <coughs> important to the story. And there is about the story an atmosphere of the supernatural. Um, the scholars argue, <coughs> did uh, Jesus have some cunning plan set up with friends in Bethany with code words to be able to obtain the donkey? But the way the story is told carries with it this um, idea of God being at work supernaturally and mysteriously. So Jesus is making his pitch that he is uh, Mashiach, anointed one, uh, translated in Greek as Christ, and he's trailing things for those, if you like, who have ears to hear, to recognize who he is. But popular thinking did not entirely tie in with what Jesus was going to do. Uh, so if you think about, there's the Hebrew word for Mashiach, Messiah, <clears throat> the sort of expectations that people had were interesting. They were also quite complex. I found this interesting academic book, which is 60 quid for a hardcover, so I didn't buy it. But the title is worth noticing. Uh, you won't be able to read it, but it says... Um, Judaisms and their messiahs. A clever title, because actually understanding of how Messiah might come was a little bit varied. There were uh, three verses in the Old Testament that people were holding on to. Uh, in Genesis 49, a reference to the scepter from Judah. In Numbers 24, the star from Jacob. In Isaiah 11, first six verses, the shoot from Jesse. And particularly from the 3rd century BCE or the 2nd century BCE, this had begun to develop in popular thinking. Some of the thinking concerned the coming of another David. God had promised there would always be a Davidic king on the throne. So surely the Messiah should be another David-like king. Other people, in particular the Pharisees and the Zealots, <coughs> thought about a coming warrior and as they were a nation occupied by an oppressive power, obviously the coming warrior would defeat the Romans and help to re-establish Israel as an independent state, which in fact did not happen uh, for 2,000 years till 1948. The 
uh, Essene community at Qumran um, believed that there would be two messiahs, a priestly messiah and a kingly messiah. Some people thought in their messianic expectation <coughs> that there would be a new temple inaugurated like the one described in Ezekiel. Some thought Messiah would come and bring an apocalyptic force that would bring a new paradise. So if you went out and did a vox pop asking the man in the street on Palm Sunday, what will the coming of Messiah look like? You'd have a number of different answers, but a number of areas of overlap. Now, what the followers of Jesus, it says in the account in Luke, what they did was they looked at the sort of things that Jesus had done, and some of them were obvious ticks as far as a coming Messiah was concerned. So what they did was this. They said, Jesus is going to be the Messiah. I know how the Messiah will come. Therefore, the Messiah is going to come in this way. And at that point, they moved from a realism to an optimism because they were expecting God's activity upon the political stage of the world to be in accordance with their own limited understanding of what it would look like. Jesus, on the other hand, had done a lot of work in reflecting upon Scripture and supremely in seeing in Scripture his own suffering. We're familiar as 21st century Christians with scores and scores of scriptures in the Old Testament which relate to the suffering of Jesus. But the great majority of people had missed that. And Jesus had done a most wonderful thing in creatively linking up the scriptures that he was reading. Jesus saw the description of a coming son of man in Daniel. And that's a picture of somebody coming in an awesome uh, demonstration of power, <clears throat> but he then linked that with the teaching in Isaiah 53 and other chapters about God's coming suffering servant. So a verse which you will probably be familiar with draws those together in a revolutionary way. When Jesus says in Mark 10:45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the coming Messiah, who is the Son of Man, is coming as a servant who is going to die. Jesus chooses a donkey. Uh, why? Kings who are victorious would come on a horse. Kings who are celebrating peace would choose a regal animal, in their thinking, the donkey. But there is a clear statement of purpose and intention in which animal is chosen. And as we'll see when we go further into the reading, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. There are only two scriptural references to Jesus weeping uh, at the tomb of Lazarus and here as he approaches Jerusalem. So where other people are imagining uh, a political masterstroke that will unseat the Romans, Jesus looks at Jerusalem and sees what is going to happen in the year 70 when the city is surrounded and destroyed. So Jesus, instead of anticipating a mighty military conquest, sees that within what God allows, there would be suffering for God's people. That's a note that we may need to remind ourselves of when we work out our own plans or our own understanding of what God is doing.
Uh, It is very unusual for God to inflict suffering on people. But there are many, many times in scripture where he allows the suffering that we have caused to take place to happen as a result of our disobedience. So we see there is a big gap between the religious optimism of uh, the followers of Jesus and the realism that Jesus has, which prompts me to ask the question, how exactly do we define the roots of religious optimism? And I think there are three things. Firstly, those who saw Messiah coming in this way had studied the scriptures, but their understanding of scripture was incomplete. Secondly, the people who were doing this had an openness, followers of Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, but their hearing was inaccurate. And thirdly, on account of them being human, they had an inclination to be selfish. Now, if you look around the room, or more appropriately, look in a mirror, you may find people who have an incomplete understanding of Scripture, a sometimes inaccurate hearing of the Holy Spirit, and an inclination to selfishness. So I think what we're hearing in this scripture passage is a warning about assumptions made too quickly that we know what it is that God will do. On with reading. You'll be glad to hear the next two points are a little shorter. There's bad news. I forgot my watch. Good news. I can see the clock. Um, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come uh, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I mentioned a moment or so ago how God will allow suffering to come because of our mistake. Jesus is saying, if only you would recognize what I am bringing. But because of your obstinacy, the path that is now set in motion will happen. Jesus was right about not one stone being left on itself. If you've ever been confused about how the Western Wall remains, that was a buttressing wall built by Herod to surround the Temple Mount. It's not part of the temple. So, next, personal religious optimism. Um, News of healing brings people who are seeking healing. So I think it's not unlikely in the crowd were people who thought Jesus was coming so they would get healed. As I soaked into this scripture over the weeks and pondered on it, something occurred to me that I've not noticed before. Somebody will graciously correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. I don't think Jesus healed anyone after Palm Sunday except the ear of the high priest's servant. So if there was an expectation of healing, it was deferred. Um, People's desire for a freedom from oppression was more than simply taking the Romans out the way so Israel could be an independent state. They had a personal interest, for example, in taxes. Their theology bypassed, as the people of Israel bypassed for very many years, 
the possibility that failing to keep your side of the deal with God might result in God withdrawing the protection that he offers. Um, and the Hosanna, interestingly, Luke doesn't have the word Hosanna. He's writing for Gentiles, so he keeps foreign languages to a minimum. Um, Hosanna means Lord, deliver us. So there is in this coming into Jerusalem people uh, who have a personal religious optimism. We need to keep in mind our, our tests uh, with our own personal religious optimism. Uh, are we clear on scripture? Are we hearing the spirit? Are we in humility before God? Third chunk. Oh, sorry. Yeah, just a note here. The Pharisees, when they say teachers stay quiet, their personal interest was that if Jesus was inciting a riot, they would be in trouble for allowing it if the Romans heard about it. Uh, third chunk of scripture. Then he entered the temple area, began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Uh, third and last heading before we try to apply this, profitable religious optimism. How many of us, I wonder, have a, a sense deep in our hearts of what we should be doing with our business or our money, recognize that some of it is not conformed to God's will, but work on the basis that God is gracious and this much we can get away with. Certainly in the temple courts there were people like this. Uh, you had to pay your temple tax in temple shekels. You probably didn't have any temple shekels, so you had to change them from whatever currency you had. It's claimed that they uh, put an extra interest on that transaction, a tradition which has been carried on to today with all those who provide foreign currency. Um, they also, within the temple grounds, had a monopoly on perfect animals. You had to bring a perfect animal for your sacrifice. You could bring one with you, or you could buy one sort of outside, but if you wanted your animal to be guaranteed ritually pure and suitable for sacrifice, you'd buy it inside the temple compound. They had a monopoly, and they charged for it. Uh, one person has claimed, um, William Barclay in his commentary, uh, that the selling places in that court were known as the Booths of Annas. And the name Annas may be familiar because he's a high priest who turns up later on in the story. And also there are claims that the temple courts were used as a route just to ship merchandise around Jerusalem, cutting through those outer courts. Now, in a couple of minutes' time, uh, I want us to try and think about what the Father wants us to do in response to engaging with this uh, scripture. But I did promise you a little bit of video. Uh, so today, uh, on Palm Sunday, thousands of Christians will be streaming down that path that we saw. Uh, and there are two things to watch out for. One is the wonderful variety of the church in all its diversity. And the second is they have proper palm branches not the single leaves that we fold into the shape of a cross. But have a quick look and wish you were there.
there's one beautiful thing that comes from the brokenness of the Christian church. Uh, You may be aware that Christians can't agree on when Easter should be. That means that they can't agree on when Palm Sunday should be. So twice I've been there to celebrate Easter, I've been been able to do Palm Sunday in the afternoon, which is a a pretty wonderful deal, really. Now, um, one of my passionate beliefs in terms of preaching and teaching is that when we encounter God in worship, in the hearing of his word, uh, in the explaining of his word, God by his spirit is at work in us to look for a response from us. And there may be things that many of us have in common as a response or things that some of us will have as individuals in terms of a response. But if we're going to get this more right more often, we need to develop our understanding and our hearing and our humility. So perhaps one of the things the Father will ask of you this morning is to know scripture better, to read scripture more, to develop hearing to the Spirit. Uh, Sometimes we come forward and ask for a fresh encounter with the Spirit and God is gracious and does that. But there are also long-term things in Ephesians 5, my Greek class know this, it says go on being filled with the Spirit. We need to go on being filled. If you want to understand uh, humility, I could say you won't find anything better than my teaching, but that would be a lie. Um, So instead, allow the Holy Spirit, who develops the fruit of the Spirit, to develop that within you. Um, Just to underline, there are these things we can be confident about. If you come here this morning, uh, not yet having decided to be a follower of Jesus, Be confident God loves you. Jesus died to bring you in relationship with him. That is not something upon which we're going to be looking for more clarity. Um, But there are other things where we need to recognize that other people have different views to our own. Our wonderful discipleship year get a little bit grumpy with me sometimes because if I'm explaining something controversial in scripture, um, like... uh, to what degree is the Genesis story dependent on the Epic of Gilgamesh, or what are the literary sources used in the compiling of the Pentateuch, Uh, I'll outline to them a number of different perspectives and explain why each has a coherence, and sometimes they'll say to me, but which one should I believe? And they know now that I will say, which one do you think you should believe? Because there are things where we need to develop interpretation. One very quick book recommendation Um, This wonderful book by um, Brian McLaren uh, called Generous Orthodoxy has impacted me more than anything else I've read in the last 10 years. If I tell you what the subtitle reads, it says, Why our missional plus evangelical plus post-Protestant plus liberal plus conservative plus mystical, poetic, biblical, charismatic, contemplative, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, incarnational, depressed yet hopeful, emergent, and an unfinished Christian. And I have loved that because it helps me even more to understand the presence of Christ in brothers and sisters who think differently to me. Last slide. Um, Come on, don't die on me now. Primitive manual method. You can do it. Here we are. Okay. Um, There's no debate on the essentials. And if you want to follow Jesus today, we'll help you with that. Um, 
But think back to Brexit and think back to Trump. You'll probably have your own views. I, I was actually, I learned a lot from finding godly Christians who on both of those issues believed passionately and seriously something different to what I believed. So we need to be careful when we talk about what God will do. Uh, some of you are aware that the issue of peace in the Middle East and Arab-Israeli conflict is very, very important to me. But over the last 20 years, I've met with and listened to people on different sides, and it is complex, and I'm beginning to understand both sides. You can make a plausible Christian case either way. When at the beginning of May you come to make your uh, vote, if you are able to vote, um, I hope that you will engage politically and make a godly decision about who you will vote for. But uh, do understand that each of the major parties, and actually some of the more controversial minor parties, have sincere Christian followers within them. So, in terms of your political optimism, by all means engage and seek the Father's will, but try not to assume that you know what God is going to do politically. Um, what about our personal optimism? Now, I'm going to tread into a delicate area here because it will be important to, to some of you. The first picture is a picture called The Running Father, one of my favourite pieces of art. <clears throat> Those of us who are desperate for a member of our family to come into relationship with God through Jesus. Um, sometimes we perceive things where we believe that God is saying they will come to faith. Sometimes, in the end, we're proven wrong. Hearing God about the things closest to our personal life is very difficult, and we need support and help with it. Similarly, in terms of the ministry of healing, we regularly hear some of the wonderful things that God does through the ministry of healing, and that is great. And yet among us are not a small number of people who have wrestled with uh, life-changing illness uh, for tens of years, seeking healing but not encountering it. And the hard fact is that the more challenging the illness, the less likely it is that we're going to see healing. Now, I have seen, uh, with, with my own eyes, extraordinary healing where God breaks in. What I'm saying is be careful if you believe God is saying such and such a person will be healed, because if you're wrong, it's going to do significant pastoral damage. And lastly, in terms of your money, uh, as Tim was saying earlier on, uh, something that's of great importance in terms of our following of Jesus. He speaks about it a lot. Uh, I'd be just a little bit cheeky. In your heart of hearts, what do you think you can get away with in terms of not following absolutely what you believe God is calling you to? So rest confident on what God has done. Rest confident on who God is. And be gentle and cautious but active in seeking to understand what God will do. So we come to a time of response. Let me give you a little menu. There might be things in your heart that God is dealing with. And you may just respond to that personally. 
you will engage more with scripture. You will seek to be filled with the spirit. You will allow the spirit to mold your character. Uh, there may be things that you would really value others to pray with you about. And as always, we'll have people at the front here who will pray with you. There may be areas of personal anguish with somebody coming to faith or a need of healing that you would particularly value the prayer of brothers and sisters for. You may need help with your resolve in terms of finance. Or there may be another area where God has been speaking into your heart in the course of the service. If you're able to, would you like to stand? And we will seek to engage with God. Father, by your spirit, will you please come and continue the dialogue you have started in our hearts? Will you help each one of us to respond appropriately to you? Will you help us please to engage with scripture, to receive your Holy Spirit and listen to him, to offer all of our lives to you, and to live as obedient disciples, seeking not what we want, but what you purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.